Hey, let me encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to turn to Ephesians 3. There's a bulletin that was probably put into your hands as you came through the door. In the bulletin, there is a, a sheet of notes. I pray that you'll pull that out. And if you don't have a pen, there's some in the back that have been sterilized. We'd, we'd love for you to have that. While you're turning and getting situated, I, I was thinking this last week about back to the days where I was a professor in college. You, 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 you all knew that, right? You knew that I taught in a college. Did you know that? For In fact, for six years, I did that. From the fall of 1987 to the spring of 1994, I was the head of the youth ministry department at Pacific Christian College, which is now called Hope International University. It's located in Fullerton, California. This is a picture of the, of the campus as it exists in, in Fullerton. Anyways, as a professor, I was, I was always wanting to make sure that my students got it. I didn't want my students just to hear a lecture and then kind of walk out of the classroom and, and forget at the door what they, what they had heard. I wanted to make sure that they were actually taking in the material that I was giving to them, that they were processing it, that they were applying the, the truths that were being given to them to their, to their ministry life. So I, I got in the habit early on of going backwards. I got in the habit of making sure that everybody was on board before we moved ahead, because typically a lecture in youth ministry would, would build on itself. So I found, found myself, you know, in my notes, coming to the end of the lecture and literally turning the page to come to the next, to the next section. And then I would pause and I would stop and I would literally turn the page back. And, and I, would, I would then engage the class with questions. What, what, what do you think? Do, 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 you, do you have any questions? How, how would you take this principle and how would you apply it into your ministry life? How will this change the way that you act? How will it change the way that you minister, the, the way that you respond to the people around you? What philosophies in your ministry will be different because of this truth that is being laid out? And what, what, what was amazing to me is how, how often a critical truth, a critical point of ministry was missed. And I, listen, I just understand, it's, it's, it's easy to do. It's easy to miss the important stuff. We can be going in so many directions, have so many things bombarding us, that stuff just kind of comes in one ear and, and goes out the next. So before I moved ahead, I was constantly going backwards. I, want to make, I wanted to make sure that the students actually got it. Now, as we move to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is getting ready to pray for the Ephesians. He, he offered his first prayer in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He, he, he taught in verses 3 through 14, and then he prayed. Paul, Paul prayed that, that the Ephesian Christians would actually get what he had just taught them in the first 14 verses. He, he prayed that they would know God better, that they would know their hope, that they would know the power that was living inside of them to be able to be the people that God had called them to be. Paul prayed that the Ephesians would get it. Paul's prayer in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 was built on what he had just said. It was formed around the teaching in that first part of chapter 1. And now as we move to Ephesians 3, Paul is getting ready to pray again. In fact, here's what it says in verse 14 of chapter, chapter 3. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. What is he praying about? Well, he's getting ready to pray about what he just taught. This time in chapter 2. Chapter 2 was all about the heart of God. 
about the heart of God from bringing people from their situation of death and bringing them into life. And then the amazing plan that God had to bring in all of humanity into this, into this place where we were all the children of God, one united family. In fact, here's what Paul says in Ephesians 3, verse 14, the beginning of this prayer. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom the whole, his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And then at the end of this prayer, he, he offers what are some of the most unbelievable few words in the New Testament. He says, now to him who is able, speaking of God, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or all that we could even imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Seems like an impossible task to bring the people of the world into relationship with God and into relationship with each other to unite the people of the world into the family of God. But here's the truth. God is up to the task. He's able to perform that miracle. He can get it done. His spirit moving in us is powerful to accomplish his will. So this powerful prayer begins with Paul making the statement. He says in verse 14, for this reason, for this reason, but before Paul could get to this prayer for the reason that he was kneeling before the Father, Paul, Paul has a moment where it almost looks like he stutters. Look at Ephesians chapter, chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, for this reason, I, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now I want I want you to I want you to look at these two verses. He he says in verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father. In chapter 3, verse 1, 13 verses earlier, he's getting ready to pray. For this reason I, and then he stops. He stops. He stops cold in his tracks. It's like it's 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 like he's turning the page, but, but now he's he's flipping the page back. He wants to make sure the Ephesians had fully understood, fully incorporated everything that he had just said to them. So Paul takes the first 13 verses of chapter 3 and reviews. He reviews. He, he goes back to make sure, did you really get it? And as reviewing, as he's reviewing, he's doing it from a very personal platform. God's heart is actually going to be unleashed then someone has to stand up and start to help make it happen. And that someone was Paul. Okay, so that said, what we're going to do is we're going to dig in. We're going to dig into Ephesians chapter 3, but to, the first 13 verses. But to do this, what I want to do is I want to go backwards. I want to go backwards. I want to, I want to go back, in fact, nearly 30 years. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesian Christians, probably sometime around 62 or 64 A.D., Paul was converted to Christ. He became a Christian about 35 AD, some 28, 30 years earlier. And to put this all together, I want to go back and put that history in front of you so you, you can hear who the apostle Paul is or who he was, and then pick up into Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. So, so let's begin by going backwards and looking at Saul of Tarsus. And as we start talking about Saul, you need to know that we're talking about the same guy, Paul. Saul of Tarsus is this young man, at this point maybe 30, 35 years old, was a rising star in Judaism. 
Now, we all know the Christian Paul, but before Paul became a follower of Jesus, he was a Jew. Saul was born in Tarsus, and from an early age, his focus, I mean, his life focus was on Judaism. He was an up-and-comer in Judaism. His mind was focused on being a person who would serve Jehovah and completely follow Jehovah's law. The first thing we start getting about him from Scripture is that he had a personal pedigree that really honestly set him up for success. Here's what Saul said about himself in Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was born, and eight days later I was circumcised, exactly according to the commandment of God, uh, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, he, he knew his family history. He knew his family heritage. A Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. And to that, Saul adds these words in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Saul, Saul was a young guy. I mean, even when he was 8, 10, 12, 15 years of age, Saul was one of those guys who knew where he was going. Have you ever been around somebody like that? Maybe in your high school years, maybe in your college years. There were, there were, there were people in your class that just knew who they were, knew where they were going to be. So many people are floundering. What are you going to do when you grow up? I, I have no idea. But there's some of those people that say, in five years, I'm going to. In 10 years, I'm going to. In 30 years, I'm going to. They just, they just know it. That, that, that was Saul. As a young man, he was serious. He was focused. He was determined. And what was his goal? Living righteously before God and advancing the cause of Judaism. And this wasn't just a theoretical pursuit. It wasn't just something that he was twisting around in his mind. Saul's lifestyle intimately followed this path. Nothing would keep him from, from being God's man for Judaism. Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Saul had the Torah memorized. The, the Torah would have been the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Torah in Hebrew is law. He had all of the law memorized. It was in the forefront of his mind. And in his mind, he was following it. I am legalistically righteous. In other words, I'm keeping the letter of the law. Now, honestly, we know that's not true. Nobody is capable capable of keeping and following the law. The law was written to be a constant reminder that, that we are sinful. The law was put into place to help us understand how far from God we actually are. In fact, after his conversion to Christ, Saul, the apostle Paul, said much the same thing and, and, and concluded that, that we are unrighteous. And he preached it loudly, loudly. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 in your notes. Go home, go home and read those passages. Paul understood that his pursuit of perfection, his pursuit of righteousness, was vain. But in his early years, he didn't get that. In his early years, he thought, I have arrived. And that drove Paul, or Saul, to his next pursuit. And that was to take on the role of protector of Judaism. And that, that, that means he became a Pharisee. Now, 
this is not in your notes, but I want you to write it down, that Paul was a Pharisee. And you you hear, like a lot of people, the title of Pharisee, and and automatically you, you just cringe a little bit. And the reason you would cringe is because Jesus had so many harsh things to say to these guys. I mean, all you need to do is, is read Matthew chapter 23 to know how true that is. It'll drive you to that conclusion. Jesus called these guys whitewashed tombs, sons of hell, hypocrites. I mean, I mean, he he Jesus had not a lot of good to say about the Pharisees. They had completely taken the Old Testament scriptures, they had completely twisted them to their own, to their own means. In fact, in his dialogue, Jesus' dialogue with the Pharisee Nicodemus in John chapter 3. If if you read between the lines a little bit, it almost sounds like Jesus is ridiculing the Pharisee, belittling him, making fun. John chapter 3, verses 10 is Nicodemus is coming because he has questions, and Jesus is putting the truth out to him, and Nicodemus is questioning it it back. Jesus Jesus says, and you're Israel's teacher? And you do not understand these things? What's wrong with you? I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people, you Pharisees, do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earth, of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? According to Jesus, Nicodemus was completely confused. He was a Pharisee and he was completely lost. How do you lead anybody to water if you, if you don't know where the, where the pond is? Jesus was right. The Pharisees were blind guides. But it didn't start out that way. The Pharisees came into existence to literally protect the law, to know God's truth as it is revealed in the Old Testament, in the Torah, to hold that truth in esteem, to live it out, and then to encourage the other people of Israel to take that, to take that, same, that same stand, that same walk through, through life. The word Pharisee literally means separated ones, ones who were separated for God. It came into existence during the intertestamental period. The book of of Malachi in the Old Testament is the last of the minor prophets, the last book written, probably around 430 BC. Jesus came onto the scene. He was born probably about 3234 BC. So during this 400 years of silence, the people of God were on a slide, and it wasn't a slide going anywhere positive. They They were turning further and further and further away from God. They were taking God and putting him on the back burner. And the Jews were becoming more secular, adopting adopting secular practices, pagan practices, something that Israel always struggled with. But in this intertestamental period, it's, it's exactly what they were doing. So when the Pharisees rose up, they were rising up for the purpose of turning this tide and to try to get the people of Israel back online as they should be. It was a noble pursuit. And Saul was a Pharisee. It made him a protector of everything that was Jewish. Many years later, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. And standing before a hostile crowd in the temple courts, he tried to talk some sense to them. In in chapter chapter 22 of Acts, verse 3, he said, I'm a Jew. I was was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. But, but brought up in the city under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers. I was just as zealous for God as you, any of you are today. N- notice a few things that Paul says here about himself. Number one, I was, I was 
I was trained under the fame leadership of Gamaliel. This is the Gamaliel who speaks up in Acts chapter 5. Is, is the Sanhedrin is coming undone, and they're not sure what to do. Gamaliel is the one who rises up in Acts chapter 5 to try to settle them down and to, and to talk some sense into them. This guy was Paul's mentor. Second, Saul was a thoroughly, he was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers. In other words, he was an expert in the Torah. Not only did he have it memorized, he understood it. He knew it, he understood it, he followed it. He could teach it, explain it, defend it. And it drove him, third, to become a zealot for God. He took none of the law of God, none of Judaism lightly. He was a ready defender. This was the center of his life, and he wasn't willing to give an inch. He zealously defended Judaism, which means, which means he was serious. There was nothing casual about this young man. He wasn't a Sabbath Jew. He wasn't the kind of guy, you know, that would, would, would grab his copy of the Torah and, and dust it off on the Sabbath and then, you know, put it under his arm and carry it into the synagogue. That's, that's not who this guy was. This guy was a 24-7 follower of, of God. He worked diligently to daily walk with God, to know God, to live for God. And he encouraged everybody else around him to do the same. He was serious, so serious that he became the chief persecutor of Christianity, zealously working to wipe out the church. Now, what you have to understand is the church was springing into being around 29 AD, that the, that the number one threat to Judaism was the church. Jewish men and women were accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior and becoming Christ's followers, which, by the way, was exactly what God intended to happen. Remember, Judaism was not the end. It was a means to the end. Judaism was the stopgap to get people from their sinful ways to a, a Savior, to the Messiah. As we have talked, the Jewish leadership had missed all of this. They, they had twisted it. And as a result, they were desperately trying to put an end to anything Christian. Remember, they killed Jesus. And when that didn't put things to an end, now they were working to wipe out the church. And Saul became the point of the spear in this operation of annihilation. For the, fir the first time we see this young man coming into play in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen. If you read through the text, you see that Saul was there holding the coats of the people that were literally throwing rocks and, and, and stoning Stephen to death. You, you might think that he took that task because he was young or because he was afraid or because he, you know, he didn't want to be guilty of picking up a rock and hurting anybody, but that, that, that would be missing the point. He was taking responsibility for what was going on. 25 years later, when he's, he's now a Christian, 25 years later, Saul is recounting this. In Acts chapter 22, he says, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the cloaks of those who were killing him. This is, this is where that phrase, left holding the coats, comes from. All the, all the people would take off their coats so they could do the dirty deed, and they, would, they didn't want to lay them in the dirt, so they would lay them into the hands of somebody. And the one guy that was holding all of this weight of all these coats, probably 60, 70, can, I mean, can you imagine all of that? If, if the authorities, the Roman authorities showed up and all these people went running, the guy holding the coats would be left there standing and he would be the one arrested. That was Saul and Saul gladly took on that role. 
If anybody wants to know who's responsible for this killing, it's me. That was Saul. Leading the way, young Saul leading the way to wipe out anything Christian. And we read in Acts chapter 8 that a great persecution broke out against the church. I mean, I read that and assume that, again, that Saul was right at the point of it. He's moved from killing one to killing many. And then in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we see this this young man on his way to Damascus. He has letters of authority from the chief priests. And he's, he's on his way with these letters to go and arrest and then murder Christians. Years later, Paul admitted in Acts 22, verse 4, I persecuted the followers of this way, of the Christians, to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, so also the high priest and all the, count, and all the council can testify. And, and, and if you read through this section of Scripture, Paul's saying, and Damascus wasn't the only place I did that. I was going from city to city to city to accomplish this. Saul wasn't acting in secret. He was out there. He was the henchman. And nobody wanted to get in his way. Saul was a serious young Pharisee. And that made what happened next really pretty unthinkable. Because in Acts chapter chapter 9, Acts chapter 10, Saul does a complete 180. He moved from being the leading adversary of Christianity to the central apologist for Christianity. Now, the word apologist means defender. When Saul became a Christian, he moved from being the chief defender of Judaism to the chief defender of Christianity. At one point, he's traveling. I mean, literally, like one day, he's traveling to wipe out Christianity, and like that same day, boom, he does a flip, and now his life is doing this 180 where he's now going to spend his life traveling to promote, defend, lead people to the one he was trying to wipe out. His change was so complete that even his name has changed. He goes from Saul the Pharisee to Paul the Apostle. Paul's complete life change was centered in two critical moments. The first was in Acts chapter 9, which was his conversion to Jesus. And in his conversion, he was literally confronted by Jesus. If you read all about it in Acts chapter 9, on his way to Damascus, as we talked, to arrest these Christians, and then as they're jailed now to to kill them, suddenly his life is flipped upside down. A a blinding light appears, and a voice starts speaking to him. Saul Saul is blinded by the light, and he's he's wondering what's happening and who's speaking to him, because this voice is saying, why are you persecuting me? And Saul Saul says, who are you, Lord? Who, Who is it that's talking to me? And the voice says, I am Jesus. I'm the one that you're persecuting. Now, this was, (laughs) I don't know how else to phrase this, but this was like Saul's bummer man. That's like what we would say in California. Bummer man, bummer, bummer. This was Saul's bummer man moment. Everything he had lived for was suddenly being shot down. And his only response at this point is to bow to the authority, to bow to this one named Jesus. Saul, Saul, blinded by the light, was led into Damascus. There, a man by the name of Ananias was led by God to go to Saul and to explain to him how to become a follower of Jesus, to repent of his sins, to turn to God, to to be baptized, which Saul was at that moment. And then Ananias also healed him of his blindness. Scales literally fell out of Saul's eyes. Saul listened. He accepted it all. And now suddenly, I mean, literally, he woke up as a a Jew wiping out Christians. He's going to bed that night. As, as, as one of the people he's trying to kill. 
And the second thing that drove Paul's life, not only was his conversion, the second thing was his call. God established a definitive purpose for Paul. I want you to do this. Paul was called to travel the world and lead people to Jesus. God, God set this man aside for this purpose. He was to become a herald, a missionary. He was, supposed, he was to become a spokesman to the world for the cause of Christ and his church. That, that, that's how God explained it to Ananias, the man who was led to Paul to go, to go teach him and lead him to Jesus. Ananias questioning the Lord. God says, I want you, I want you to go to this house on straight in the city of Damascus, and I, and I, want, and I want you to lead this one named Saul. He go, and Ananias is going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've heard about this guy. Isn't he the one that's killing Christians? Do you want me to go present myself to him and talk about this stuff? But God assured Ananias this was exactly what he was supposed to do. Verse, verse 15, Acts chapter 9, the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Ananias is, is faithful, and the rest is history. Now in Acts 13, which would be like 10 years later, it's all starting to come to fruition. Christians in the church in Antioch are gathered and they're praying. They're fasting and they're praying. And while they're fasting and praying, the Holy Spirit literally speaks out in this prayer meeting, and many people in that prayer meeting hear it. And the Holy Spirit says in, in verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, Paul, for the work to which I have called them. Now, the, the church listened to this, and they said, did we really hear that? And they fast and pray some more. And sure enough, the, the voice comes again. And so they know this is what they're supposed to do. The church is faithful. And they did what God asked, and immediately Paul and Barnabas were on their way. In fact, the rest of the book of Acts speaks of the three missionary journeys that Paul took. But to be more specific, Paul's calling to go be a herald to the world was to the Gentiles. God called this man to the Gentiles to lead them to Jesus. I put several, several passages in your in your. In your notes right here, I, I want to encourage you to, to go home and read them. Ephesians 3, Romans 11, Galatians 2, 1 Timothy 2. There's, there's no question that this was God's call to Paul right from the beginning. The call is crystal clear, and there's absolutely no denying it, and it leads to the third thought. Paul put his life's calling to work. He allowed God to use him uniquely for service in the kingdom. And honestly, friends, as Christians, this is the bottom line. This, this is what it's really all about. Ephesians 5.10, Paul's going to write this in a couple of chapters. It says, find out what pleases the Lord. And the simple next step is just, it's, it's just understood. Find out what pleases the Lord and do it. Walk that way. Our lives are to be lived for the purpose of bringing glory to God. That should be the first and most important question we come to in any situation. We ought, we ought to wake up in the morning saying, how can I bring God glory today? What can I do right here? What can I do right now? What is it that God would have me do in this present circumstance that would, that would bring him glory, that would bring him honor, that would, that, would, that would make him known? It's a simple approach to life, but listen, it's how we ought to approach our lives. It's how Paul chose to live. In his pre 
Christian days, in his Jewish days, he was zealous for God, for his cause. And when he found out how wrong he was, he immediately switched teams, but he was every bit the zealot that he always was. Zealous to live and to stand for God. His life was lived for the sole purpose of bringing God glory. And this is where Paul pauses, right here in chapter 3. He's getting ready to pray. I, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. But, but, but before he flips that page ahead, he's now, he's now flipping back to make sure that the Ephesians got it. And he wanted to make sure that they had put it all together. So he makes several critical points. I want to listen for you really quickly here in chapter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. First of all, he says, God's mystery has been revealed. Several, several times in this short little letter, Paul refers to the mystery of God. Chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 4, 3, verse 6, 3, verse 9, 5, 32, chapter 6, verse 19. Paul's referring to this mystery. For years and years and years, the mystery of God was unknown. But now this mystery has been made known. So what, what is the mystery? Well, Paul writes in verse 6 of Ephesians 3, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. The message here is that salvation is for all people. John 3, 16, for God so loved the, the world. It doesn't say for God so loved the Jews. It says for God so loved the world. The, the Jews were the ones that were bringing the love of God through Jesus Christ. They, they were unleashing it. They, they, they were the ones that brought the Messiah to us so that God's love could be understood. For God so loved the world. Second, Tim, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to eternal life. I mean, th th this is the promise of God. God wants you saved. I know that this has been said several times. I know, I know the, the point has been hit already as we've looked into Ephesians, but I'm just telling you, friends, it cannot be overstated. Paul drove this home repeatedly by repeating it several times. God always wanted the Gentiles to be included in the kingdom of God, and aren't you thankful for that? Because most of you are Gentiles. I happen to be Jewish, but that doesn't make any, me any more important than you. The truth is, my people were the people that brought the Messiah to the earth, but we all needed the Messiah. Why? Because we were all dead. We were all dead. We'd all chosen sin. We were dead in our transgressions and sin. We were all bent for hell. Jews, Gentiles, everybody alike. So were the Jews special? Yeah, they brought us, this, they brought us the Messiah. But, that, but that's where that ends. Because the truth is, we all need to accept the Messiah. All people have been given the opportunity to accept Jesus as their Savior. That's the simple mystery. God wants all people saved. God wants you. He wants you and his family. God has moved all of history to this point. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul continues. It was his intent. God's intent was now through the church. The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. You don't have to, you don't have to cower anymore. You don't have to wonder how to become Jewish anymore. 
Jesus died, the veil of the temple ripped open. We now have access to God and you can walk confidently in that. God wants you to know that you are saved. God wants you to know that you are in his family. God wants you to know that he loves you, that he's written your name in his book. God wants you to know that he's making right now a home for you in heaven. Come on, church, we have a great God, don't you think? Yeah, this is his will. It was his purpose from the very beginning. And now what God wants you to do is respond. Accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Accept his gift of grace on your behalf. Allow Jesus to move you from death to life. And the second key point that Paul is putting out here as he's reviewing for the Ephesians is that Paul's exclusive role in this whole scenario is established by God was to serve the Gentiles. You would have looked at Paul's upbringing, his education, his formative years, you would, you, you, you would have thought that God had outlined the life of this guy to be the apostle to the Jews. He could have effectively been the evangelist, the apologist for his own people, and he would have been effective because he knew how they thought. He, he knew what was running through their minds. He knew what stumbling blocks laid right in front of them. He knew how to speak their language in a way that he can encourage them and convince them of the, of the truth of what he was saying. The, the leading Jew of his day would have been able to make a big splash with all the rest of the Jews around the world. But God had a better idea. God said, I want you to go to the Gentiles. Now, over and over and over again, as Paul would pull into a city, he would reach out to the Jews. But if you, if you look at his ministry, especially moving through Acts, he would start the synagogue, he would get kicked out, and then he would go to the Gentiles. And through the Gentiles, he's forming all these churches. And it, the Jews were coming in second. They were the ones to catch up, typically. And I'm just telling you, friends, that God works this way all the time. He puts you where you are best suited. He doesn't put you where you think you should be. He puts you where he knows you should be. Your life is blessed when you understand all of this and you get busy serving the cause of God according to the role that he's put in, in front of you. Paul got this. He accepted it and he got to work. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, the leading Jew of his day was called to minister to the Gentiles, lead them to Christ. He had a front row seat in watching it all happen. So, so Paul is saying, I, is he's reviewing, I want you to get this, this mystery. The mystery is that every, God wants everybody in his family. Secondly, God has called me to, to, to speak out to the Gentiles. And third, the third key point that Paul wants to review here is that he had been gifted to serve in this distinct way. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 2, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. What Paul is talking about here are spiritual gifts. God has administered through the Holy Spirit spiritual gifts into the lives of believers. And the reason you have those gifts is so you can do the things that God has called you to do. Now, Paul doesn't go into the list here of what spiritual gifts he had. But as we look at his ministry and we read about his ministry through the book of Acts and through the epistles, the letters that he wrote, it, it comes out pretty quick that he had several key, key gifts. First, he was an apostle. Secondly, he obviously had a gift of leadership. Thirdly, he had a gift of preaching and teaching. 
Fourth, he obviously was an evangelist, a gifted evangelist. He could stand up and speak and lead people. He was like the Billy Graham of his day. And fifth, he had, he, he had a gift of wisdom, discernment. He could see into situations and understand and know how to, how to best move. That's why churches around the world were writing him letters saying, help, what do we do? And Paul was responding. And some of his response we have recorded right here in the pages of Scripture. We have the wisdom of Paul as it's written out through the, through the gift of the Spirit is, is the Word of God in our hands. All of these gifts were put into place to help Paul with his task as appointed by God. And then, and then down in chapter, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, Paul gets even a little bit more pointed here. He's talking about this mantle that he wears as this leader in the church, but, but he says very clearly that he's unworthy of it. He's a vile sinner. If anything, he's worthy of death. He's worthy of hell. But God not only redeems those that are lost, not only does God take those that are dead and make them alive, God fully restores to life. See, I think so often Christians have this messed up in their minds. And the thinking is that God may save me, but what he wants to do is put me in the basement someplace because I'm like my messed up uncle that everybody's embarrassed about. You know what I'm talking about? So we lock him away. That's how God must feel about me, but that's not how God feels about you. When God, when God saves you, he cleans you up. Not only, not only does God bring you into his family, he fully restores the value of your life and he makes you useful to the world and to his kingdom. God never calls you to do something he has not gifted you to do. And so when you come to Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit is living inside of you to gift you to do just like Paul was gifted to do. It means you need to trust God because you have a role. God has gifted you for that role, and he wants you to get busy with it. And it leads to a forethought that Paul wanted to drive home. And that's simply this. Paul humbly surrendered to God, and he did what Jesus said in Matthew 16. He picked up his cross. He allowed himself to be put to death so that he could serve the kingdom of God, serve Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. In verse 7, he says, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. I want you, I want you, I want you to see these two words. Paul, Paul's common, common way of referring to himself was as a prisoner or a slave. And that, that word prisoner speaks of a person that literally is in shackles. They are bound. They are bound. And this is Paul. He saw himself bound to the will and the work of God. He wanted, he was being led and he wanted to follow exactly where God wanted him to go. He was a prisoner. And second, in, in verse seven, he says he was a servant. Servant, this, this word in the Greek, servant is diakonos, which is where we get our, our English word deacon. It simply means a person who serves others. This was Paul's view of himself, a bound prisoner going where God would want me to go for the sake of the Gentiles serving the kingdom to unleash God's kingdom, to bring glory to God. And friends, this is exactly what God wants you to do too. He wants you to choose, to choose him. God's ready to move you from death to life. It's your choice. 
You accept Jesus Christ and you move this way. And as you're doing that, you understand that, that this choice is you become God's person to live for him, to be bound, a prisoner to serve other people. And it leads to one more point that Paul wanted to drive home before he moved ahead and prayed at the end of chapter 3. He, he said, I want, you, I want you, Ephesians, to allow my trials to bring you encouragement. He said in verse 13, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are really your glory. Now, it shouldn't be surprising to you that Paul's, Paul encountered huge trouble in carrying out the task of preaching the kingdom of God. And if you, if you, if you want to read about this, just turn in your Bibles to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29, because there in a few short verses, Paul just starts listing these things. The number of times he was jailed, the number of times he was beaten, the number of times he was flogged, the number of times he was stoned. I mean, he was shipwrecked. He's gone without food. He's in danger. And he's writing all of this stuff down about all the ways that he suffered. And Paul didn't want the pain and trouble in his life to be discouraging in any way. In fact, if anything, what Paul is saying is that the trouble that, encounter, that we encounter in our life really, really is a statement of God's calling on our life. Because here's the truth. The enemy does not want you to succeed. And when you make a determination that you're going to become the shackled prisoner of God to serve his purpose, then suddenly you take on the sights of the enemy because you become dangerous. People who have determined to live for God and to promote his cause and his kingdom and live to glorify him are dangerous to everybody around. And so, and so suddenly all this attention is on Paul. And as the attention is on Paul, he's suffering. And Paul's not seeing that as a bad thing. Paul says, when you're enduring pain in your work for God, it may be a huge sign that you are on the exact right path that God wants you to be on. So accept it and move that way. Trust that God is bigger than any of your problems. And don't be, don't be overwhelmed by it. Don't be overcome by it. Give God praise because you've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And let me, let me just say one more thing here, friend. The pain you endure in suffering for Jesus is, is oftentimes opening doors of possibility. You go into the book of Philippians, Paul is writing this from a jail cell. And as he's writing it, he's chained up between Roman centurions. And as he's chained up here, what he has is the opportunity. He, he, he's not the one that's captured. These guys are the one that's captured. And as Paul, as Paul is sitting with these guys chained up to him day and night, he has, he, these, these guys are stuck listening to whatever he has to say. And so he's just preaching to them. The book of Philippians, at the end of the book, he says, look, at, look at, at the beginning, everybody knows that I'm in chains for Christ. By the end of the book, here's what he's saying, that, that the Christians in Caesar's house send you greetings, Philippians. How, how in the world did some of Caesar's household become followers of Jesus Christ? It happened because Paul was chained up in Caesarea by some of these guys. And as he's chained up, he's leading them to the Lord. And then as they rotated home to, to to live in the palace and to take care of Caesar's family and watch over them. Now suddenly these guys are having the opportunity to speak out. And because of that, people are coming to Christ even all the way up to the higher echelons of Rome. And sometimes your pain and your struggle and your hardship is an opportunity for you to speak, about it, speak out about the love and the grace and the peace and the hope that you have in Jesus so be thankful when you face troubles. And Paul says, don't be, don't be ashamed of me and, and don't be overcome by it. In fact, be encouraged.
Now listen, friends, the task of our lives is to serve the Lord and his kingdom. That is the whole duty of man. To live for the will and the purpose of God, to bring him glory in this life. And when we come to the end of our lives, we should be able to say we did just that. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, the last words he spoke, it's finished. He didn't mean I'm dead. He meant I have lived to do the will of God and I've done it. Second Timothy chapter 4, Paul's getting ready to die. He's getting ready to be beheaded. And here's what he says. I have fought the fight. I've done it. Everything that God has laid on my shoulders to accomplish, I did. And friends, when I come to the end of my life, I want to be able to do the exact same thing, to say, it is finished. I've accomplished it. I don't want to breathe my last in this life wondering about that life. I want to breathe my last in this life knowing that I have lived for the purpose, lived for the heart of God. And I've accomplished his will. Paul knew it. This torture of Christians became one. Redeemed from lost and dead to saved and alive. And then he gave his life as a prisoner and a servant to the Gentiles, as unthinkable as it may have been, to help them come to the same and Paul's encouragement to you is give your life for the same purpose. Let me encourage you, friends. Bow your heads. Would you do that? Bow your heads. And with your heads bowed, let me just encourage you here to ask yourself two questions. Number one, are you saved? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Have you accepted his grace? Have you accepted his mercy? Have you converted from your way to his way? And second, have you surrendered to your call? Have you taken on the work of God and are you following it with your life? Really, as, as we leave here today, those are the things that we need to be most concerned about. Is Jesus my Savior and my Lord? Is my daily life spent living for him? So, Father, we pray that you'll help us to not be afraid to stop before we flip the page forward to flip the page back and ask the important questions. Is it true to me? Have I accepted my living? Father, I pray that you'll help us to not be satisfied with anything less, to not be conned into believing that there's anything more important. Father, I pray that you'll help us to make those simple decisions and declarations and live them fully. Father, help us today to stand for you and to stand for your will. And that's our prayer in your son's name.
and God's people said, hey, we're going to take communion. A few, few moments, the ushers are going to come. They have little cups. They'll pass to you. There's two tops on them. Take the top off, and there's a little wafer. Take the second top off. There's juice. This represents the body and the blood of Jesus. And this is that gift of grace from God to help you go from dead to alive. Every time the Christians gathered, we read about in the, in, in the book of Acts, this is what they were doing. They were reminding themselves and each other that God is filled with grace and filled with love, and he has moved us from death to life. And this morning, friends, claim it because it's true. You don't have to be a member of our church to partake. You just need to be a member of the family of God. So, Father, I pray that you help us to know these truths, to claim these truths, to be thankful for these truths, and to live in these truths. Guide us. Strengthen us. Encourage us. Father, make us joy-filled because of them. We give it to them in the name of Jesus. Amen.